Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to an episode in Grinnell College's Authors and Artists podcast. And today I'm very pleased to say we have Baronda Montgomery on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, Lessons from Plants, which is out from Harvard University Press in 2021. Baronda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I am originally from Arkansas. Um, really? Little, yeah, from Little Rock, I lived Arkansas. in Arkansas for a while. I lived in Fayetteville for a while. Oh, okay, yeah. I grew I up in Little Rock, Arkansas. Yeah. Um, and went off to college at Washington University to study biology and math and thinking I would go to law school um, and ultimately fell in love with biology and went off to pursue a graduate degree um, that led me to being a professor. And I've often said that being a professor is the best way to stay a student for a lifetime. So I was a professor for 18 years at Michigan State and new to Grinnell College since July 1st. That's terrific. And so how did you make your way to Grinnell College and how do you like it? (laughs) <laughs> so I am I am really enjoying being at Grinnell College, especially the last week or so. The students are back, and so there's the real energy of a new year in the air. I made my way to Grinnell College um, after being at Michigan State for 18 years as a professor of biochemistry studying plants. About 10 years ago, I started to really look at lessons that I thought we could learn from plants about how to be better instructors and mentors and leaders. And that work took me into conversation with lots of different colleges and universities about cultivating college uh, campuses. And ultimately, um, I got a call saying there's a campus that might be a really good fit for the way you think about the world, uh, the way you think about leading. And ultimately, as I came here and had a chance to talk to people at Grinnell and alums of Grinnell, it seemed like a good fit for the ways I view the world and taking me back to my liberal arts roots, uh, back to Washington University. Liberal arts. Well, that's just, that, that's, a, that's a great story. Grinnell is lucky to have you. Thank you. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the book. Why did you write Lessons from Plants and what were you hoping to accomplish with the book? So I think it was a twofold purpose for writing the book. Um, Apart from, I always say that I am a writer who happens to be a professor. I love to write. Um, So the opportunity to write a book link project was one that I was drawn to. Uh, But I think the, the concept of lessons from plants predated the book in that some years ago, as I was trying to have difficult conversations about things that we need to do as mentors and leaders in terms of cultivating spaces that really give people an opportunity to grow, Um, I found that starting talking about plants would allow people to enter conversation about difficult interactions and get deeper into the conversation than if we start talking about human-human interactions, because we often have a defensiveness when we think about the things we need to do. But thinking about the way things work in the world and asking what we can learn from that, it was also a way for me to reconnect with my mother. Uh, My mother, I grew up in a house uh, full of houseplants and vegetable and flower gardens in the yard. She has always loved plants and always had a green thumb. So it was a way for me to translate the kind of very technical things that I was learning about plants to something that I could invite the people I really love into the world that I was in as well. That's a great answer. And particularly doing honor to your mother. That's always important. Absolutely. Important to remember our mothers. Yes. Um, So there's a striking expression or phrase that you use in the book, plant blindness or plant bias. What is that? Yeah, so I I approach trying to think about the ways that uh, we um, acknowledge that often humans don't pay close attention to the plants in their communities. And often we just don't, we ignore the plants. 
Um, for example, if you take someone into a museum and ask them what did they see, they'll often recount the stuffed animals that they saw, you know, the preserved animals, but they rarely talk about the plants that were around that. Yep. And that's been talked about a lot in history as, as plant blindness. Yep. Um, in recent years, uh, people who think about ability and disability have asked us to reconsider using blindness because it does have a kind of a, a, a disability um, trigger for some people. And so there've been a lot of different conversations about whether we should talk about it as increased plant awareness. Um, there's a, one uh, person who has started talking about plant awareness disparity. I use plant bias simply because the first people who started talking about alternative ways realized that it may be a bias against seeing certain things um, that are kind of far removed from us. And so um, that's what that kind of communication and co conversation in the book was about. Yeah, I had plant blindness when I was growing up. As I said in the pre-interview, I'm from Kansas originally. And so we divided plants into ones that you could make money from and the ones you couldn't. Yes. And that's, <laughs> that I think it. that's very common in the U.S. That's very common. We're, we're tuned into corn and other things that we see as yeah. commodity crops, but often not others. Yeah. Yeah. The other ones were trash plants. And I, actually, they didn't use the word trash. Oh. I won't go any further than that. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so um, actually, I should say I had this really interesting experience. I was at uh, Home Depot or something, and they were selling Venus flytraps. Yes. I was like, I'm going to get a Venus flytrap. Yes. I don't know what the, what's up with that. And I was really reminded reading your book about this, because that plant did a lot of things. Yes, <laughs> yes. It did yes. a lot of things. And so you really touch on some big philosophical points here. Uh, and, and one of them is, I guess what I would you call it, awareness, plant yes. awareness. What yes. is plant awareness? I think plant awareness is an invitation to be aware of all the living beings that are around us, in this case, focused on plants. But I think that it is just an, um, a sense of whether we are aware of all the other organisms that share the planet and have a sense of what their roles are. And I think in particular, plant awareness is critically important when we think about a lot of big issues. If we understand the critically important role that plants play in our own existence, being aware of that may give us a different kind of relationality to them and maybe mm -hmm. a different sense of responsibility about caring for the planet so that they continue to exist as we continue to exist. Yeah. So let's just go through some of this because I have all kinds of prejudice against plants. And, and Oh, my. Oh, yeah, really. Yeah. Me and everybody else. <laughs> I don't pay enough attention to plants. It's right. Yes. But uh, there are things you point out in the book. There are things that plants do that we usually only attribute to. Well, I guess I would call them sentient beings, but that's yes. wrong because plants are sentient. too. Yes, yes. So like one of them is they um, they communicate. Yes, so there signals. is. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think I, I often share this, um, that much of what's going on around us in terms of plant communication, we're aware of, but we think of it as something that's related to us. So when you smell a rose and you smell the scent or you're next to a tomato plant and you um, smell the scent, if you crush the leaves, we We've triggered that triggers to us an awareness of what kind of plant it is, but that's actually the language of plants. Mm -hmm. Those chemical mixtures that we're smelling are actually the language of plants. Roses are producing those beautiful signals to attract the pollinators. Tomatoes are producing some of those signals to ward off uh, uh, herbivores. And so plants language is really a chemical based language. Yep. The beauty of it is, is that like plants, plants that are related can recognize the language of a kin plant and have a different response than if they recognize the language of a plant that's not related. So every time we're smelling those scents, that's plant communication and conversation yeah. that's going on around us. Yeah, that's that's well said. And I'll go back to the Venus flytrap for a second. I got the Venus flytrap and I put it on my uh, uh, 
on on the window ledge above my sink. And Mm -hmm. I keep a very clean house and there are no flies or uh, gnats or anything in my house, at least so Mm -hmm. I thought. Mm -hmm. I put that flea and star trap up there and suddenly... Yes. There were all these yes. bugs. Yes. And so this was the Venus flytrap doing what? So that is actual communication. So in addition yeah. to plants communicating with each other, they communicate with other organisms. And yeah. so the Venus flytrap uh, produces chemicals that attract yeah. the very rare bug that makes it well, into your I house. Well, right? I'm not sure they're very rare, actually. <laughs> and so, right. you know, that that the bug is being attracted to the likelihood of getting some sugars, but the Venus flytrap is attracting that bug because the Venus flytraps are a type of plant that we think of as actually eating insects. Yep. Um, and that's because they have really high nitrogen requirements and the bugs actually get trapped in the Venus flytrap and they degrade the bug to release the nitrogen from the bug as a source of fertilizer. Yeah, no, it was pretty remarkable to see this happen because I yes. really didn't think there were any gnats or flies in my house. Yes, yes. But there were, and the Venus yes. flytrap found them. There are other things that plants do in addition to communicate. They, You, you say they have a certain kind of memory. You didn't they expect do. that. Yeah. Yes, they do have a memory. And I think that the the plant that, um, that demonstrates that most readily, a lot of us have encountered it probably in elementary school, is something that I thought about because you mentioned Venus flytrap, but a mimosa plant, which has these leaves that some people think of like a fern. It's the plant that often was brought into a kindergarten class. And if you touch the tip, the leaf closes yep. up. Yep. Well, those plants have served as a powerful tool for testing testing plant memory, because if you do that several times, it'll close and it reopens and you touch it again and it closes. If you do that too many times, it recognizes that that's just a regular signal that it doesn't need to use any energy to respond to. So that's thought of as memory when it says, "Okay, well, I've been touched frequently. The other kind of memory are plants that overwinter. And so these are plants that they have to be exposed to a cold winter. And when spring comes, there's a memory that winter has passed. And so that warm day is a signal for spring and flowering as opposed to just a random day. So, so this there actually, are, yeah, yes. this, this gets us right into it because the, the, especially the mimosa, it was a mimosa, right? Yes, that's correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. It, it came to recognize what was really a fault signal. That's correct. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And that, it leads us even further away from the general taxonomic distinction between flora and fauna. It looks like it made a decision. <laughs> yes, yes. And you know, that that always triggers people to think that plants can make decisions. So I always talk about them as biological or molecular decisions, right? It's not the same thinking pattern that we have, but it is a series of reactions and a response. And if we think of being able to respond appropriately to some signal that you get, as you know, um, a response, they are absolutely able to respond appropriately to, to certain signals. Yeah, and th- this leads me to another thing in the book, and this is, and it directly relates to the mimosa about the wasting of energy. Plants have energy budgets. Can That's you talk right. a little bit about that? Absolutely. So plants have energy budgets where they have a certain amount of energy and they have to make molecular decisions about what's the best use of that energy. And I I liken it to humans with our financial budget. So unless you're Oprah Winfrey or Bill Gates, I don't know you, maybe you're in the category. No, I I definitely am not. (laughs) We have this financial budget where as soon as you're paid at the beginning of a month, you might be able to have a luxurious dinner. But as that budget is depleted, you have to make different decisions. And plants do similar things with their energy budget. So they have to make decisions about whether growing 
or defending them themselves against a pest is the most appropriate use of their energy. And you can actually see them weighing those decisions depending upon what environment they're in as to whether energy goes one direction versus the other. So they actually have these budgets and they make what we think of in plants as wise decisions about where that energy needs to go first. Mm -hmm. Another thing that uh, we'll get back to the issue of, well, maybe we won't get back to it. Maybe we'll go to it right now. One of the things that made me think in your book is about the way that we taxonomically divide living organisms. Mm-hmm. And I think this goes back to Aristotle. I'm an historian, so I think it does. He invented a taxonomy for uh, living organisms. And there's a strong distinction between flora and fauna. Mm-hmm. Is that distinction still made in biology? Or, I mean, obviously it is, but in the light of your research and other people's research, is it fuzzier than we thought? I think it's fuzzier in some ways, but there's still a pretty strong distinction between organisms that have a nervous system and those that don't. Um, And I think the reason that I say it's fuzzier is that we recognize that plants can make some decisions and responses that really are the same from an outpoint standpoint of people that of individuals or biological organisms that have a nervous system, they just do it in different ways. But there's a pretty strong distinction as to whether you have a central nervous system um, or as opposed to whether plants, they don't, but there are still some central organizing principles that allow yeah. them to respond as a whole organism. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm interested in this analogy between whatever plants have and a central nervous system, because it does seem to me that they, they communicate with their various parts Absolutely. So certainly there is strong evidence that plants communicate. So for example, if the root gets a signal that can be perceived and respond, have a change in the above ground part. So there's definitely some coordination across the entire organism. The question is, what's the basis of that? Yeah, this is exactly Um, my question. How does that happen? Often what happens is that plants do have signals, whether they're hormones, electrical signals, or other signals that start in one part of the plant and can travel through other parts of the plants. Uh-huh. And we know that hormones can be transported through um, xylem and phloem, which is a it's a yeah. you know a system that flows throughout the plant, much like you would expect something flows through the blood system. But there are no nerves in terms of the nervous system that are right. uh, mitigating that. So often it's hormones, but there are also electrical signals in plants um, that really? can be measured. Yeah, there are electrical signals. In fact, part of what's happening with the Venus flytrap and mimosa is an electrical signal after touch. And so, and then there are also these waves of things like calcium, that if you touch the shoot, you can see a calcium wave from the shoot to the root. So there are multiple ways in which plants are able to communicate, whereas organisms like us have this central nervous system. I see. So they are actually, they're a little bit more adaptable than we are because all we have is a nervous system. <laughs> well, and that's what I say. Plants are, mu- they have much more complicated in some ways. <laughs> Yeah, that's absolutely that's absolutely f- fascinating. Um, and one of the things that's you know a, a very strong distinction is plants. Uh, well, a, a lot of sentient beings with nervous systems move, and yes. plants don't. But so, I don't know. I have these vines outside. Yeah, <laughs> plants do like, move. It looked and like I, they grabbed that tree. 
<laughs> plants do move. Plants move in lots of different ways. So there is actual movement of plants. I mean, when you think about a sunflower, you can see it actually moving, turning its uh, yeah. flower towards the sun. Vines certainly move. There's this nutation. Um, there was a a professor when I was a postdoc at Indiana University, Roger Hangarter, he may still be active there. I'm not sure if he's retired, but he did an artist show called uh, Slow Motion where they actually did time-lapse photography of plants. And there's a lot of movement in plants. It's just slower. Um, and certainly many of us have seen movement of plants as they bend towards the light yep. you know, in our house. Um, but there's also slower movement of plants where over their life cycle, the roots are moving. Plants move through growth, uh -huh. which is different from the ways that we move through muscles. Yeah. So uh, this is kind of a broad question, but one of the things you said in the introduction was that we should think differently about our relationship, not only with plants, but with each other. What have you learned from studying plants about the way we should treat each other? So I think one of the things that I have learned about plants, um, about the way we should treat each other is two, I would say two. One of them are the ways that plants in diverse communities often thrive better together than if they're growing alone. And that's because they have this reciprocity um, where if you're growing something like corn with beans, the bean is fixing nitrogen and nitrogen some fixing, of that, yeah. right? Whereas the plant provides support. So I think that when... Um, that's been known for years through indigenous farming practices. Scientists have also shown that they have greater resilience to stress when you grow in these diverse communities. But I think also one of the things that I have been really impressed about in terms of things we can learn from plants are, one of the things I learned most is how plants ask for help. Um, and so in the book, I talk about this three-way interaction that can happen with some plants. So for example, one plant may be attacked by a mite and it's not able to defend itself from that mite. But when it's attacked by the mite, it produces a signal that attracts a wasp that eats the mite. And so that ability to produce the equivalent of a language that says there's a problem here and I need help and being able to draw in help is I think has been a powerful lesson for me. I think mm -hmm. often as humans, we can get in this kind of, I have to figure it out for myself, self-determination kind of mode. Mm -hmm. And that understanding of the power of voice um, for calling out for assistance from someone else is, I think, something that can be critically important, as well as being the party who listens for the signal yeah. if you have the thing that can actually help someone else. Yeah, well, this relates to my boyhood in Kansas. And one of the striking things about Kansas, and this is true of Iowa as well, is the growth of monoculture. Yes. And in Kansas, you see these absolutely enormous yes. wheat fields, and they are just wheat fields. Yes. And I always thought to myself, as somebody who studied biology at Grinnell College, mm -hmm. that these were relatively fragile. They are fragile. And that's one of the reasons we have so many inputs, right? We have to put in fertilizer inputs. We have to put in inputs to help protect them um, from pests. And we do this because of it's easier to harvest a monoculture than it is to harvest a polyculture and separate it. So a lot of times we do it for the ease of growth and harvesting, but there are significant inputs because of the fragility of the system. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a striking thing when you fly over the United States and you Absolutely. see these fields, how yes. how different yes. it actually is. Well, it's been it interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's been interesting because of part of what's going on in the world. There's been a recent phenomenon in the U.S. where some farms have been permitted to grow two crops together mm -hmm. to try to increase. And they're seeing some of the benefits of that. 
the biological benefits, even though the decision was driven by food shortages because of global crises. And so I think biology keeps reminding us of the importance of it, even though we've set up a system that depends on monoculture. Yeah, I even remember this when I was growing up, is that we would grow a wheat crop and then we would grow a soybean crop because yes. soybeans fix nitrogen, right? That's and right, to replenish the soil. Yeah, exactly. Yes. This is just yes. standard. Everybody knew this. And yes. I always wondered why they weren't grown together. But I guess it's yes. harvesting is just It not, is. Yeah, the care and harvesting. Yeah. yeah, it's too hard to do. So what what is the uh, growth of monoculture due to genetic diversity? I can't imagine it's anything good. Yeah, so there is a lot of evidence that, of course, growing in monoculture reduces the genetic diversity of the entire ecosystem. And so yeah. certainly, you know, pollinators that would be attracted to other plants are no, no longer attracted there. And then right. the, the animals that feed on the pollinators. And so you actually reduce biodiversity by growing monocultures as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is a this is of of some concern. I think that we should pay pay attention to this genetic diversity. I suppose there are seed banks and things, aren't there? Where these yeah. yes, there certainly are seed banks, um, and certainly there are. Um, in a lot of cases, you will see that people try to grow kind of border crops around monoculture to keep some of that diversity. But it's you know there are many different approaches and many different impacts. Yeah, that's great. Well, I. I this has been an absolutely enjoyable conversation. I can tell you that uh, I've learned a lot about plants and I'll be more plant aware. The um, The traditional final question on the New Books Network is, what are you working on now? So part of what I've been working on now is um, every time I move to a new environment, I try to become aware of the local uh, kind of plant community and local impacts. Uh, one of the things I've been really interested in um, here in Iowa is I had not been aware of what a derecho was until I came to campus <laughs> and saw some of the trees that had been flattened. And so part of the question I've been asking is what we can learn from the recovery um, of that as we watch plants recover. Um, I'm always looking for new lessons from plants um, and I am starting to think up new projects that are also kind of connect my own history as an African-American studying botany uh, with plant lessons that are available. Well, that sounds fascinating. I'm yes. sure I'm sure your mother is proud. I hope Yeah, shout out to your mom again. Um, well, Veranda, thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. <laughs>